Thank you, Anita. Thank you, Ruthann. We live in a troubled world. It has its ups and downs. Eternity is coming. That's our hope, our expectation. Until then, be faithful. This morning, as we interact with God's Word, dealing with a subject, I guess I would say, overall that I enjoy, but yet very difficult for me to deal with, because we're just going to talk about God and His glory in light of what we presented the last couple of weeks and what we'll present the next couple of weeks. But the reason it is difficult, because I, as a finite human, am trying to talk a little bit about an infinite God, one far, far beyond us, but yet desiring his glory. As we begin, a couple of statements. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. Do you ever stop and ponder what God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit did in eternity past? Apparently had communion and enjoyed each other for their own glory. C.S. Lewis says, the great problem of human beings is that they are far too easily pleased. The great problem of human beings is that they are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis also said, and I quote, if you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you ask almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if if abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves, to take up our cross in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in the modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it, is a bad thing. 
I submit that this notion has crept not from scripture, but from several men of the past. Indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of the holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We're stop and ponder how easily we are pleased rather than a passion to know Christ to know God and to experience God and to experience Christ and find joy in them. And to realize that he desires that for us. For his glory. We're satisfied, at least temporarily, with computers, technology, games, retirement, houses, money, iPhones, etc. What about God's glory? What about Christ alone? What about just enjoying God? What about pursuing our own joy by glorifying God? What about enjoying God? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah is a book that contains very strong pronouncements of judgment. God very strongly saying, I'm going to judge Israel, but also a book that offers tremendous comfort. So in the midst of judgment coming, God says there's going to be great comfort. And keep in mind when we get to the book of Isaiah that it's addressed to Israel, and if you look at Israel's past, we know that God called Abraham, and he promised to bless Abraham. From Abraham, Isaac. From Isaac came Jacob. And I'm going through the line that God is going to bless. From Jacob came 12 sons. And then we know from those 12 sons that they spent some time in Egypt, and then they spent 400 years in Egypt. And God called Moses and delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. They wandered in the desert 40 years and ended up going into the promised land. And we know that in the promised land, things did not go real well because after the life of Joshua, they fell into sin and were up and down and up and down in sin. Years later, God sent prophet after prophet. And one of the prophets he sent is Isaiah. And Isaiah basically says, listen, gang, Brubaker paraphrase here, God's going to judge you. You sin. You violated my covenant. But I want you to know that there is hope. I'm judging you. It's coming. You're going to go to Babylon. You're going to spend 70 years in captivity. But there's hope. Let's read together starting with verse 1 of Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And a natural question from this verse would be, who is the servant? 
Look back at chapter 41 and verse 8. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you and I've not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So the servant in the context seems to be the nation of Israel. Verse 2 of chapter 42. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God, the Lord, says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who will walk on it, I excuse me, the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and you will make and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sat in darkness. Now Isaiah is a book of judgment, but in the midst of judgment, He's saying to Israel, I have called you in righteousness. I'm going to use you to be a light to the Gentiles, to open eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who are set in darkness. And then notice in verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and now new things I declare Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Now think about that. The Lord is speaking. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. In the context of judgment, God offers comfort. In the context of comfort, he reminds Israel, as he would remind us today, the Lord is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. It's so easy in the day in which we live to get caught up with living. The Lord says, the Lord is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God is concerned about his own glory. 
and he's going to get it. You say, that's selfish. God can't be selfish. He's concerned about his own glory. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Look at a couple parallel passages of Scripture. Exodus chapter 3. Now, when we get, go to Exodus chapter 3, we know that God has called Abraham. From Abraham came Isaac. From Isaac came Jacob. Jacob's 12 sons, they ended up in Egypt to escape the famine. And then they were in captivity for some 400 years. And God is calling Moses to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt. And notice what is said. In verse 13, God's been speaking to Moses, and Moses has been saying, hold it, God. You know, kind of giving God some excuses. And Moses says in verse 13, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? This is what I, or what, then what shall I tell them? Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to Israel, I am, has sent you. Who is God? I am. Who is the Lord? I am. I am that I am. When did God begin? I am. When does God end? I am. Who is the Lord? I am. Wherever you put God, he's the great I am that I am. And as a great I am that I am, he's the Lord, and he's concerned about his own glory. He will not share it with anyone else. And he says to Moses, tell them that I am, that I am, has sent you. Now go back to Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah. And let's look at chapter 40. I list some other references on the wall, but we're not going to look at all of them. But look at Isaiah chapter 40. God's comforting his people in the midst of judgment. Isaiah 40 and verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Now God, the Lord, I am that I am, is speaking about himself. And he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The obvious answer in light of the text is, I am, that I am does that. Remember we left Ghana a couple years ago and we're flying across the puddle, the pond, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. We spent 11 hours crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And every now and then, you know, you peek out and say, still over the ocean. An hour later, still over the ocean. And an hour later, still over the ocean. An hour later, still over the ocean. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The Lord. Ever think about the Lord holding the Atlantic Ocean in the hollow of his hand? I am that I am. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on a scales and the hills on a balance? 
He's driving home the greatness of himself. So God's got this basket. God, what do you got in that basket? Well, I just got the dust of the earth. It's just in my basket. God, how much do the mountains weigh? Oh, I weigh them in my scales. No issue for me. Verse 13, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? We try to instruct the Lord sometimes, don't we? Hey, God, this is what I think you should do. And I'm praying to you. Here's what I want. Now, God, you've got to do this. The obvious answer is no one has instructed him. Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? The obvious answer, no one. Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Again, the obvious answer is no one. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare me or compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such, such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, the Lord, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. And he goes on to describe himself. And this Lord says, I will not share my glory with anyone else. Who is the Lord? I am. Go over to Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11. Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 11. Again, in the context of judgment, in the context of comfort. Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Here's God, the great I am, that I am, saying, I will not yield my glory to another. I'm concerned about my own glory. I will not yield it to idols. I'm to be glorified. God is concerned about his own glory. He desires his own glory. And he desires for people to bring glory to him. Listen as I read from Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. Malachi is the last writing prophet before Christ, some 400 years before Christ. And by this time, Judah has come back from captivity. They are not being responsive to God. And God says, my name will be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun, 
And every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. In verse 14, cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in the flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. God's concerned about his own glory. I'm not going to share it with anyone, he says. Because it's mine. Turn to Ezekiel, just before Daniel. Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 9. Again, Ezekiel deals a fair amount with judgment. Ezekiel 20 and verse 9. But for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations they lived among and in whose sight I had revealed myself to the Israelites by bringing them out of Egypt. And again, we're leaping into the context, but in the context, the Lord is saying, I had to respond to Israel in a certain way because I did not want my name to be profaned, because I'm concerned about my own glory. Look also in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 14. Ezekiel 20 and verse 14. But for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. And in verse 22 of Ezekiel 20. But I withheld my hand, and for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations in whose sight I brought them out. And also in verse 44. You will know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake and not according to the evil ways and your corrupt practices. O house of Israel declares the sovereign Lord. What's Ezekiel saying? What the Lord told him to. And the Lord is saying, I'm concerned about my name. I desire my own glory. You could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 35. We won't turn there. We find again that there the Lord is concerned about his own glory. He's concerned about his glory. You will find in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 58 through 63, before Moses goes in, dies and Israel goes into the promised land, that God, again, in the context of blessing and curses for Israel, whether they obey or disobey, that he's concerned about his own glory. I respond and I react according to that which will be for my own glory. Let's turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Psalm 72, verses 18 
and 19. <clears throat> the context of God enabling a king to serve well, he says in Psalm 72, verse 18, Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Praise to the glorious, his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. God is concerned about his own glory. Repeat it over and over again, and we'll look at some of the passages tonight. God's concerned about his own glory. So what should be our focus in life? God's glory. You say, God's glory? How does that look in day-by-day living? Well, let's take job and school. God is concerned that you bring glory to God, glory to himself, while you're in school or you're on the job. You say, how do you do that? I'll mention just a couple things. Work and study as on to God. So you get up tomorrow morning, you're going to head off to work or school, thinking, no, I'm going to school today, I'm going to work. God's my boss. God's my teacher. And I'm concerned about his glory. And that means we study and we work not with eye service, that is, we're good when they're watching, we just do it all the time. There were a few occasions when I was in school where the teacher had to step out of the room for a period of time, and their last words generally were, now make sure you be well behaved. And you know what happened about two seconds after they out of the room. Things just turned upside down. Now, if I was in the room, how did I respond? I'm going to bring glory to God. I would have listened to what the teacher said. See, bringing glory to God is a day-by-day lifestyle of where the rubber meets the road. So when my boss said to me when I was working out in East Ridge at a drugstore, Dan, by mistake, some things got thrown into the dumpster. You are to go in and dig through the dumpster and find what got thrown in there. Okay, God, I'll do this for your glory. Yes, sir. Go do it. And in the process of doing it, not thinking, oh, boss, why'd someone throw this in here? This is terrible. God, I'm just doing this for your glory. I'm in this mess but I want your glory. So you sit in class and you have that teacher that you don't especially like. He or she is a boring teacher, at least you think. You say, God, I'm to be sitting here for your glory. 
I'm to be alert. I'm to be paying attention. I'm to be applying myself. See, that's concern about God's glory. And you get to the end of the week and you get your paycheck and you say, God, I get double pay? Yeah. I brought glory to you this week and you're even giving me money for doing it. Thanks, God. See, that's a different perspective on work, isn't it? So you get your grades and you've been seeking to study hard. You've been seeking to study for God's glory. You think, ah, oh, I got to be. Thanks, Lord. I've been studying hard. I got to be. And maybe some of you get A's or whatever. You know, you even rewarded me with not too terrible of a grade. <laughs> That's God's glory. That's what we're talking about. He's concerned about His glory. So we're in the midst of a physical problem, and we say, God, fix me. God says, whoa, hold it. You're starting wrong. Let's not start with fix me. Start with my glory. God, I'll try again. I'm not doing well physically. In my responses, I want to glorify you. Now, what does that look like? Well, God, first of all, I'm not going to whine and complain about what I'm going through because you tell me I'm to rejoice in my trials. I can't, God. I know you can't. That's why I gave Christ. He is your life. Well, God, are you going to fix me? Just hold it. You get in the cart before the horse. I'm concerned about my glory. And the greatest glory may not come from you being fixed. The greatest glory may come from me giving you grace to walk through the difficulty. And you're maturing through it. Uh, God, let's try that one again. Okay. I'm concerned about my glory. And have you stopped to consider that I may get the greatest glory by letting you go through this mess, but giving you Christ as my life and seeing you come out the other side more mature? Oh, God, I... Well, do you want my glory or don't you? Okay, God, I surrender. Oh, now that you surrendered, you want my glory... Now let me decide if I fix you or not. But I will give you grace. I promise you grace. I will honor my name. I will give you grace to get through whatever you have to go through. And if you get fixed, I'll give you grace not to become proud and haughty because God fixed me. And if you don't get fixed, I'll give you grace to be more mature. Okay, God, I just want your glory. See, that's rubber meet the road. Glory and God's glory. So we wrap it up. I'd like for you to listen as I read several verses from the book of Joshua. The children of Israel have crossed the Jordan River. Moses is no longer on the scene. They have walked around Jericho six days, one time a day. On the seventh day, they're going to walk around seven times, and they're going to do a very stupid war strategy from a human perspective. 
that are going to shout and so on, and God says, let me take care of the walls. We know the walls are going to fall down. But God had clearly stated before that in verses 18 and 19 of Joshua 6, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble in it. All the gold, or I'm sorry, all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Everything in Jericho was to go into the Lord's treasury. And we know the account that Achan decided to take some of the items. But the Israelites, and he's speaking of them as a nation, acted unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan took some items. One man. So the Lord's anger burned against, not Achan, against Israel, the whole nation, for one man's sin. So what did Joshua do? We took Jericho without any problem. Let's go take Ai. And he sent only a few men. Don't need a lot. Small town. And they got defeated. And what's Joshua do? He cries out to God. You know, what's going on, God? And God says to him, stand up. What are you doing down in your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their back and run because they have been liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. We know that in time it comes to Achan and Joshua says to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him praise. Tell me what you have done and do not hide it from me. How was the Lord, or how was Achan to bring glory to God? By admitting he had sinned. He had taken the forbidden things. But the whole nation was influenced by one man's sin. The Lord's glory was not going to be with them because of one man's sin. Joshua says, give glory to God. Admit you're wrong. I want you to grasp something about the glory of God. What one person in the body of Christ does can influence the body. Because we're a body. We're not islands. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6, 12, and 14, it talks about us being placed into the body of Christ and all that God has given to us through Christ for God's glory. One of the ways we bring glory to God is just to practice body life. And I would ask you, before we sing some songs, in light of our previous sermons the last two weeks on men and women,
Men and women, are you willing to say, I've been seeking to apply the sermons on manhood, womanhood? Men and women, the Lord has convicted me. I need to repent and to be a man or a woman. One of the ways to bring glory to God is to say, I want others to know my decision. So we like to live as islands. I'll make this decision. I'll make that decision. It's mine and mine alone. God says, no, it isn't. Remember Achan? Affected the whole nation. And I'm challenging you to think, are you willing to say, God, for your glory, I'm willing to publicly say, I need to repent as a man. I've not been what God has called me to be. Publicly say, I'm willing to repent as a woman and say, I've not been what God has called me to be for God's glory. You say, that's my decision. No, it isn't. The body... We're called into a body relationship. We Americans don't think that way. I'll just make this decision. How about you teens, children? I desire to move towards being a godly man or a godly woman. See, we think... Individual, God thinks, the body. Just think about that. I'm not going to ask you to respond, but think about it. See, the decisions in my life that I have publicly shared with others are different than those that I've kept to myself. Why? Because the body keeps on my case. The body knows they can respond accordingly. And God works for his glory. So as we think about God and his glory and his greatness, we bring glory to him by letting him be God and living as a body and be willing to say, I've sinned here. I will share with others. I, this is the direction I'm going. Help me to stay on track, God. With those thoughts in mind, let's sing two songs together. Travis?